Appreciate that wonderful song service. Um, thankful for the opportunity to be here. I appreciate your presence tonight. Uh, I'm so thankful for this opportunity. Four or five years ago, I'm not exactly sure how many, I think it was about five years ago, my brother and I were uh, blessed. Uh, brother Ronald invited both of us to come up. And uh, this time he just invited me, so I see which one did the better preaching last time. So uh, <laughs> at least that's what I'm going to tell him. What I'm suspecting is, is that Brother Ronald thought I might need a little more practice, so he got me back up here to, uh, to preach again. But it is a blessing to be able to be here. Uh, I, will, uh, I will say this. We did have some adventures getting up here. When I set my GPS in Carrollton, we had, had to run down to Carrollton for something before we left. I set the GPS there and uh it was showing we would be here at five o'clock and uh as you know we barely got here by seven o'clock and it was just various things from rain and traffic and stops we had to make and uh ultimately uh put the wrong address in the gps and uh realized we were going to the old location and called brother ronald and it showed 15 minutes to get here then it took us 15 minutes to get from one exit to the other out there so there's a lot of things going on out there that uh you know, I'm suspecting the devil didn't want me coming here tonight. Uh, and I'm not sure if it's, it's because I've got a message you need to hear or, you know, sometimes it's just a message I need to preach. <laughs> I've found that to be the case in my preaching ministry is that uh, uh, since I've been uh, preaching is that there's oftentimes that I preach and nobody gets much out of it but me. But I need it. I needed to. I needed the studying and I needed to, uh, the message more than anybody else. So uh so having said all that, I do again appreciate the opportunity to be here, and I really beg an interest in your prayers tonight as we go to the book of Nehemiah. We live in a world that is broken. I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. I, and if you haven't thought that for most of your life, if you look at life over the past nearly two years, I think you would agree that there's some problems in this world. Um, We've had a pandemic that has just gone through our folks and we've had, uh, we've had political turmoil. We've had all kinds of problems. I, as, a, as a pastor, uh, I know Brother Ronald knows what I'm talking about and I'm sure you've been touched by this to some extent in your life, but as a pastor, I see broken things all the time. Uh, broken marriages, broken family relationships, uh, broken spirits, broken people, broken things in this world. And, uh, you know, sometimes those, that brokenness can af afflict us as the church of God. Um, we certainly see a lot of brokenness in the denominational world out there. Uh, uh, things that were once solid, I, I give you... The best example I know is that in uh, our area, the, our church, the church I pastor, Zion Primitive Baptist Church, um, it was founded, it was constituted in 1847. And it was constituted on uh, articles of faith that at that time were pretty much universal among Baptists, especially among the Baptists in that area. If you go back to any church that was constituted, whether it was a primitive Baptist church or a, what we would call a missionary Baptist church or even some that are now Southern Baptist churches, if you go back to the original articles of faith from 
the 1800s and early 1900s, you wouldn't find anything to disagree with between, they'd be almost identical to our articles of faith. In fact, uh, the Pickens County Baptist Association, which is the association that has all the missionary Baptist churches in it and that are part of the Southern Baptist Convention. And I'm not picking on, let me just say, I'm not picking on Southern Baptists or anybody else, any other denomination. I'm just, I'm, I just want to point out something by, by pointing this out, that, that if you go back to the original Articles of Faith of the Pickens County, Alabama Baptist Association, they're almost identical to Zion Primitive Baptist Church's Articles of Faith. Well, we still believe those same 1847 Articles of Faith, and I still preach them. Now, before you think that's some kind of prideful statement, let me also say that we had problems at Zion for a long time. Zion, you know, did you, did you know that primitive Baptist churches are not immune to brokenness? <laughs> did you know that there's actually problems sometimes among primitive Baptist churches? You thought, well, maybe you thought the primitive Baptists were perfect. Well, you don't know the primitive Baptists I know. <laughs> uh, and in fact, if you want to know a little bit about brokenness, I could sit down and tell you a little bit about my own life and a little bit about my own family and a little bit about my own experiences in this world. And I can certainly tell you about Zion Primitive Baptist Church. We've had a wonderful 10 years, just a little over 10 years of revival. Uh, in fact, it was, uh, uh, as a matter of fact, it was 10 years ago on the first Sunday night of this month uh, that uh, I joined Zion Primitive Baptist Church and became the third member. That's my journey among the Primitive Baptists started just a little over 10 years ago. But there was a long period of time where even Zion Church was, was what I would call broken. They had drifted off into some uh, heresy that they, they didn't need to get in. They'd gotten off into absolutism. They had become absoluters of, uh, under, uh, under, you know, I'm so thankful. I'm, I'm proud of my family name. I'm, I'm a McCool, you know. I'm, I hope you're proud of yours. I mean, I'm thankful. And I, and I have in my lineage, I have several primitive Baptist preachers who were McCools and one or, one or two, one particularly that was on my mother's side of the family. But, but unfortunately, my, it was my great-grandfather, McCool, who was a pastor at Zion Church under his pastorship and the ones maybe right before him, they drifted off into absolutism. There was some brokenness. There were some problems. There were some issues. In Nehemiah's day, there was some broken, brokenness among God's people. I, I don't want to get through, uh, go through the whole, the whole uh, history there. You can read it for yourself sometime. But just suffice it to say that around 605 B.C., the Babylonians had come upon the Jews under the... Under the uh, that, that, was, that was God's... Um, it was God's pleasure, it was God's will that this happened in a chastening way for them. The Babylonians came upon the Jews and took them captive and kept them captive for 70 years. And when I mean captive, I mean they uprooted them from the holy city of Jerusalem. They destroyed, you remember the temple of Solomon? The temple of Solomon was glorious. In fact, there are those that Mark it as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a huge, it was an amazing temple. If you read about it, just reading about it puts me in awe of, of that building. I mean, look, this is a beautiful building here. We've, we've got a beautiful new sanctuary down at Zion Church, but it's nothing compared to what Solomon had built. And those Babylonians had destroyed it. They had razed it, R-A-Z-E-D, to the ground. They had destroyed it. They had torn it down. 
They torn down the walls of Jerusalem. They pretty much destroyed any building that was worth anything in Jerusalem. And for 70 years, those that were prominent, those that were middle class, we might say, which really there wasn't a middle class in that day, it was just the rich and the poor, but they were carried off into captivity for 70 years under the chastening hand of God. But then about 539, the Persians defeated the Babylonians, and, 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 and back in about 536, about three or four years later, 536 B.C., remember that counts down backward in B.C., <laughs> before Christ. Uh, in about 536 B.C., uh, the, the Persian king allowed them to go back. They allowed them to go back. Now, now I just want to say, it's another message, and I don't want to go there today. But the, really, the majority of the Jews didn't go back to Jerusalem. You know why? Because it was a lot more comfortable in Babylon. It was a lot, by that time, they had gotten used to the comforts of Babylon. And they stayed there. There was a, there was a great contingent of Jews throughout history in the, in the, in the city of Babylon. But... Uh, but there were about 52,000 Jews that went back, faithful uh, Jews. They went back about 536 B.C. You can read about that in the book of Ezra under a man named Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, who was in the kingly line, had, he, had, he, had the captivity not occurred, he would have been the king there in Judah, there in Jerusalem. And he took them back and, and they started rebuilding the temple. And there's some issues there, but that's not our focus tonight. Then Ezra, the scribe, about 50 years later, he goes back with some more Jews. And they start rebuilding the worship, the public worship there that had broken down. And then Nehemiah is about 15 years or so after Ezra. And he goes back ultimately to rebuild the walls. But that's what I want to talk about tonight, about rebuilding broken walls, rebuilding broken things. There are broken things in my life. There are broken things in your life. There's broken things at our church. Our church had broken down. It needed to be rebuilt. And I believe we can take some lessons from Nehemiah. Let's look first at Nehemiah's problem. In chapter 1 of Nehemiah, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. And it came to pass in the month Chislu in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan the palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked, I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Notice the problem here that Nehemiah is just now kind of hearing about. He knew about the Jews that had gone back. We're going to find that Nehemiah was one that stayed. Nehemiah had a, a position of great prominence. We're going to see that in a moment. He had every reason to stay. Now there's a problem that he reads about. He hears about this awful condition of the Jews who had gone back to Jerusalem. Notice it says, they are in great affliction and reproach. They're in a terrible condition. There's a problem among God's people. Now, there were many reasons that Nehemiah, when faced with this problem, could have looked away. The work was too big. The job was too hard. There's any number of excuses. He could have turned away. He could have said, he could have shaken his head and said, man, that's terrible. 
and then gone on about his business. You know, I'm sorry, I've been that way before. I, I have to, I, if I could, I have to use, I'm not preaching my experience, Brother Ronald, because my experience is no better than yours, but my experience is the only experience I've got. I can't preach your experience, but I can tell you about mine. You know, my experience, it reminds me so much of the way I thought about Zion Church where I'm the pastor now. For about 15 years, maybe as many as 20 years, there were only about two members, maybe three or four members during that 20 year period. And for the last, uh, the last six years uh, uh, from 2005 until 2011, when I joined the church there, uh, uh, there, was, there was only one member. My, my aunt was the only member. She was the only living member left at Zion Church. And it was a sad situation. It was a sad commentary on what had happened there. And, and you know what I did? <laughs> I'd ride by every day going somewhere because it's only two miles from my house, Brother Ronald. It's sort of the center of our community there. I'd ride by and I'd look at it and say, shake my head. Poor, that's a terrible situation, that poor old church. <laughs> I'd, I'd, say, I'd actually said this in my mind, that poor old dead church. <laughs> that poor old dying church. When Aunt Lorraine's, what in the world are we going to do with the church when Aunt Lorraine dies? <laughs> you know? But I wasn't interested in fixing the problem. I wasn't interested in, you know, it was somebody else's problem. I wasn't even a primitive Baptist at the time. I was trying to figure out how. Now, we, look, we believe, my brother and I, some of you know this story. My brother and I grew up among the independent Baptists. And they, in, in that area, there was about 12 or 15 independent Baptist churches that believed the truth. Most, almost identically to um, to primitive Baptists. In fact, all the primitive Baptists in that area were absoluters. We thought, we grew up thinking that that's all primitive Baptists were, were those that believed in the absolute predestination of all things. I knew I didn't believe that, so I guess I said, well, I guess I'm not a primitive Baptist. <laughs> Turns out I was more primitive Baptist than I believed I was, Brother Ronald. But the uh, uh, Lord knew it, and I didn't. But I can see, I would drive by that church, and I would think, you know, that's a terrible situation. I felt bad for Aunt Lorene. I felt bad for my grandmother when she was alive. She was the other member for many years. But I just turned away and kept going because I was too busy. <laughs> I was too busy in other areas. And besides, my goodness, how in the world are you going to rebuild a church? How in the world would I rebuild a church? Because see, I was thinking it was going to be on some man's shoulders. <laughs> it was going to be on some person's shoulders to rebuild. Don't get me wrong. We're going to see. We need to be willing. We need to be ready. We need to be volunteers for the service of God. But I promise you one thing, rebuilding broken things is a specialty of God's. And it's not something that you and I are able to do apart from Him. I've just given away the whole theme of my message just, just tonight. I've skipped to the end, but I think that's all right. He could have turned away. He could have criticized. You know, I've kind of had that same approach. Well, it's their fault. <laughs> it's their fault. They should have been more faithful. You know the story there of when Zerubbabel and the first 52,000 or so Jews went back and they started, you know, they went back for the express purpose of rebuilding the temple. That was their, that was what they were charged with doing. In fact, that God didn't just tell them, God told that pagan king Cyrus that that's why I want to send them back. He, he, and he told them, you go back and build the temple. And they started building the temple. And then you read it in the book of Ezra, legitimately they got stopped. I mean, what happened was that 
the enemies of God and the, the enemies of the kingdom of God came up and started slandering them to the king. It was a new king. And he said, okay, stop. He issued a decree. It'd be tantamount to showing up at church Sunday morning and there being an order from the local judge saying this, this building is closed and you're not, to, you're not to go in. Now, I realize we live in a day where the, the knee-jerk reaction to that is storm the walls. Let's start protesting. Let's go. But that's not the right way to go. The right way to go, if that happens to y'all, I wouldn't expect you to go out there and start marching in the streets like... Most people want to do. I'd expect you to try to go through the legal uh, process and try to get it overturned and figure out what's going on. Maybe there's some mistake. Maybe there's some problem. And that's what they tried to do at that time, but they didn't, they didn't try very hard. They didn't try very hard. You know what happened? The work got stopped under Zerubbabel. And, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, who was the high priest at the time, the work got stopped and they got complacent and they neglected the work of God for 15 years. A whole generation grew up. What happens? A one-year-old becomes a 16-year-old. A 15-year-old becomes a 30-year-old in 15 years. That's a whole other message. But, but they knew this story. Nehemiah knew about that. And of course, Haggai and Zechariah came on the scene and, and, he, and God sent a message through them and they began to work again and they did rebuild the temple. But you know... I'm sure that story got told and Nehemiah knew it. He could have said, ah, there they go again, being unfaithful. There's God's people. They, they're just neglecting the work. They ought to be more faithful. You know, that's easy for... One thing I've learned in the last however long I've been preaching is that uh, it is so easy to become critical as a pastor, as a preacher. Uh, you preach it and people hear it and they listen to it and then they don't do it. <laughs> You say, well, they just thought, and then they have problems. You know what? I, I got to confess to you. I mean, I, I have that little streak in me uh, of wanting to say, I told you so. <laughs> you got that? I've, I've had that even as a preacher, you know? I preach that you ought to do this and you ought to do that and you ought not do that other. And then people that hear me every Sunday and they know, they know what the Word says, they do it anyway and they get in trouble and they seem surprised by it. And you know what I want to say? Instead of holding them up and loving them, and I want to say, well, I told you so. <laughs> Don't we all have that streak in us? But you see, that's not, that's not being very Christ-like. You, you know, have, have, you, have you thought about how many times you've disappointed the Savior? I don't even, you know, I, Brother Ronald, I've, I've said this before, uh, that uh, I'm say it very facetiously, facetiously tongue-in-cheek. The only time I ever wish I was a Catholic is when I'm up here and I'm doing the confessing. You know, if you was Catholic, I'd get y'all to confess to me. But I'm always the one having to get up. The preacher's always having to confess to y'all. But I'm kidding. I don't want to be Catholic. I'm just, I'm, I'm right where the Lord wants me to be. But, but, here, but so let me confess, even on the way up here today, I've told you a little bit of my troubles. I've told you a little bit of my problems. Guess what I didn't do? I didn't love the Lord my God with all my heart and with all my soul and with all my mind and with all my strength. When, the, when, the, when, the, when we were almost here and we realized we were going to the wrong here, we were going to the wrong place, I wasn't loving the Lord very much. I was really hating the GPS. I wasn't being very Christ-like. And I, you know, the Lord would be very disappointed with me. I know He was disappointed with me today. And praise God, He didn't look at me and say, I told you so. 
What if the Lord did what we want to do? Wouldn't that be terrible? <laughs> I'm so glad he's God and I'm not. So I say that to say I, want, I have this streak in me of wanting to do that, but Brother Ronald, I struggle with it, but the Lord helps me most of the time to get around that. I may say it in my mind, but, uh, but I try to show the love of Christ. But here, Nehemiah could have done that. He could have said, I, it's their fault. He could have been a critic and said, huh, I knew that was going to happen. They've done it before. He could, have, he could have not just criticized. He could have just passed the buck. He could have said, that's not my job. He had a good job. He was high up in the kingdom. He was the king's cupbearer. He had a big job to do. Listen, God was pleased with the Jews who served him in Babylon. There's no excuse not to serve him in the United States of America today, which appears to be getting more and more like Babylon because Daniel did it and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did it and even Nehemiah did it. We can serve him in Babylon. It's no fun. It's not as much fun as serving him in, in Jerusalem, but we can serve him in Babylon. Daniel did it. Don't make any excuse. Well, it's just the culture we live in. Well, it's just the society. It's just the end times. No, it doesn't matter. God expects us to be faithful. Nehemiah was being faithful here. He could have said, you know, I, I'd love to help, but I got too much work to do. He could have passed the buck. But I want you to notice what he did do. Instead of all of that, which is in my nature to do, and in your nature, and in his nature, it says in verse 4, it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Oh, for a heart like Nehemiah. I had an aunt one time who's gone on to be with the Lord who was at Zion Church back when it was an absoluter church. This particular day, um, we had, they had lunch at the church. It was a one time a year thing that they did. And I asked her, I said, I called her name. I said, are you going to stay for lunch? She said, no. And you could see the glee in her eyes. She said, so-and-so church over here is having a big split today, and I can't wait to get over there and see it. <laughs> She was so excited to go see a church split up, you know. I mean, in that, I laughed about that often, but how sad is that? Oh, for a heart like Nehemiah, who instead of rejoicing in sometimes the kind of trouble that we bring on ourselves, instead of rejoicing in it, he sat down and wept and mourned, not a few seconds, not a few hours, but certain days. And we're going to figure, we're going to find out it was actually four months. If you look at, verse 1 of chapter 1, and then compare it to verse 1 of chapter 2, you'll see, based on the old calendars back there, it was about four months that he wept, and he mourned, and he, and he fasted, and he prayed. Notice Nehemiah's prayer. It was a fervent prayer. He stopped what he was doing, and he wept. Have you ever, you ever been there? I've been there. I've been there where I've turned the other, you know, turned away and looked the other way, but I've also been there where the news stopped me in my tracks and I wept. And oh, that I could do that more often. He stopped what he was doing. And for four months, even as he carried on his job, he was weeping and mourning. And we're going to see that it showed 
to his king. It showed to his king. If you get on over into chapter 2, which we won't get into tonight. It was clear that there was something. There was some concern overriding all else during this time of Nehemiah's life. It was a fervent prayer. You know, James tells us that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That effectual fervent prayer there is the Greek word energio, which is the word we get our our term energy from. And it means to put forth power or to, to be operative or to work. And that word availeth, I like this word availeth. He said it availeth much. That means to have or to exercise force, to wield power. And this is the definition I like the most, to be a force, to be a force. Did you know that the effectual fervent prayer of God's people is a force? It's a force to reckon with. You know, sometimes we've had a lot to pray about over the last year and a half, two years. I've lost one of my best friends to COVID. We, We prayed for him for four weeks while he was on uh, on a, a ventilator. And you know what? I, I, I'm guilty of this. Sometimes I say, well, I wish there was more that I could do, but all I can do is pray. <laughs> That's the first thing we should do. That's the middle thing we should do. That's the last thing we should do because prayer is a force. It, you know, you hear about forces of nature. This is a force of God, a force of spirit. <laughs> The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And this was a fervent prayer as we see here. And it was also a focused prayer. Look in verse 5. He said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. What an awesome depiction of God. The great... The Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God. (laughs) That phrase, Lord God of heaven, is the Hebrew phrase, Yahweh, Elohe, Hashemim. And it only appears in the post-captivity books. That means it only comes up in these books that were written after the Babylonian captivity. And I, you know, I've often wondered why, but I, I believe it's because the Jews' understanding of God was, was growing throughout their, their, their uh, interaction with Him. Now, I know this is, I'm not, this is an inspired, I'm not, I'm not talking about the inspiration of the Scripture. It, it's in there because God inspired them to write it. But you know, I notice that God always seems to inspire people to write about things they know. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that? You know, uh, all the Psalms over there, David didn't write about some other man's experiences. He wrote about his own. They were, it was inspired. And here we find this phrase, the Lord God of heaven. You know, back in 2 Samuel chapter 6, David prayed to the Lord God that dwelleth between the cherubim. They had the, they had the, the, uh, the temple, they had the Ark of the Covenant, they had the cherubim, and they had the Holy of Holies in there. And God, you know, that's where they envisioned in their minds, that's where God dwelt. God was sort of captivated, if you will. In fact, uh, many of those writers, they understood the difference that God was the God of heaven. But but a lot of the the common man out there, they just, well, God's in the temple. God's here, you know. And that, that, that idea of God dwelling between the cherubim carried over even as far as Hezekiah, okay? But notice, you know what happened after, if you, let me just say it this way. If you believe God dwelled only between the cherubim, you're going to have a problem with the fact that the Babylonians had come in and destroyed the temple. 
If you believe God only dwelled in the temple, that was going to shake up your world. Wait a minute. The temple's gone. Where is the God? They began to understand that while the glory had departed from the temple, the Lord God in their mind, was. they understood that he was not just the God there in the temple. He was a God everywhere. And you know, sometimes we get the idea that God's the God of the church. Where is God? He's in the church. Well, he promised to be in the church. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, he said, Christ said, there am I in the midst of them. There I'll be in the midst of them. But you know, God is the God on the football field. God is the God out in the hunting woods. God is the God, I hate to say it this way, but understand what I'm saying. He's the God in the bar room. Now, now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying to you here. There are people that would say, well, I could worship him just as well in the bar. I can worship him. I had a friend tell me that actually one time. He said, well, you know, I can witness to people just as well in the bar as I do in church. And I asked him a question he couldn't answer. I said, well, let me ask you how many you've witnessed to in the bar. <laughs> yeah, he couldn't answer that question because the answer was none. But guess what? We don't... <laughs> If you're a child of God, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. He doesn't hop out of us when we go in a place that we shouldn't be. He doesn't doesn't jump out of us when we go down to 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 the bar or to some other club or some other place we shouldn't be. If you're in the midst of some sin, he's not jumped out of you. He's grieved. The Holy Spirit is grieved by what you're doing. But he's still there. See, my point is God is a God of all. God is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. He is everywhere present and nowhere absent. He's the Lord God of heaven. And they understood that. They, they got a better understanding of that after the captivity. And that word terrible is not like he's horrible. It's not some kind of bad thing. It's the idea of reverence and, 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 and fear in the sense of reverential fear. Recognizing his power and his position and his glory. It was a focus. He was, his prayer was focused not on some little God of Babylon, but on the great God of heaven. In verse 5, he says, And I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. And now look at, look at how humble his prayer was. It was an humble prayer. Let thine ear now, verse 6, Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now day and night for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. Whose sins is he confessing? You know, I have an easy time confessing your sins. You ever thought about that? I can confess your sins all day long. Oh, Lord, be with Brother So, be with Brother Ronald, be with, you know, Sometimes, though, we forget about our own, right? (laughs) That Pharisee was good at confessing the sins of the publican, but he forgot about his own. Notice what he said. He's not confessing some other folks' sins. He says, we have sinned. We have sinned. Both I and my father's house have sinned. In verse 7, he doesn't hold back. We, We have, you know... I'm guilty, and I know you are too, because I believe you're like me. This little trite prayer, Lord, if I've sinned against you, please forgive me. 
Lord, if I've committed any sins today, please forgive me. You know, and sometimes that's all I have the time to do is, Lord, whatever sins I have committed, I, I, I confess to you, Lord, please forgive me. But notice the depth and the, the humility of his prayer. He didn't just say, you know, I know I'm a sinner, but he said, we have dealt very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments, which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Old Nehemiah got pretty specific, didn't he? He got pretty much in depth. There's no, if I have sinned prayer here, is there? There's that prayer of, look, this is not some little gloss over the end of my day. It's not some little magic statement that I'm going to sprinkle at bedtime over my bed and say, Lord, okay, well, if I've sinned, Lord, please forgive me. No, this is Nehemiah recognizing that he is a man of unclean lips and he dwells among a people of unclean lips just like Isaiah. You know why Nehemiah could recognize this? Because he knew the great God of the universe. You know what happened to Isaiah when he was able to confess that? He had seen the Lord high and lifted up. And his train filled the temple. There was no priest there filling up the temple. There was no pews, pew sitters filling up the temple. There was only God filling up the temple. Beloved, when we come to church, I love seeing the smiling faces. I love hearing the preacher. I would love to hear Brother Ronald this weekend instead of me. But beloved, if I don't have a vision of the great and mighty God when I come to church, then it's pointless for me to be here. He had an idea. He had an understanding. I'm a sinner. I'm going to lay it all out here. It's not if I've sinned. I have sinned. I've broken your commandments, Lord. I've broken your statutes and your judgments. I am a sinner. Reminds me of 2 Chronicles 7, 14. My people, which are called by my name. You know what the first thing they got to do? Humble themselves and pray. If you pray before you humble yourself, I'm not sure how much God listens. The Pharisee prayed, but he didn't humble himself. The publican humbled himself and he prayed. He smote up on his breast and he prayed. And we're told that that man went down justified instead of that proud Pharisee. If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. You know the proof of true repentance is you turn from your wicked ways. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not preaching some kind of perseverance doctrine here that you're going to persevere without fail. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you, you're not. <laughs> unless you're a whole lot better than me. You know, I can, I can, be, I can be on the mountaintop, brother, brother Ronald. I can be up there. I can be flying. So you, you know when I have the hardest problem being faithful to God? You know when I have the hardest problem getting down in a valley? It's on Sunday night after a great meeting. Mark, mark my words. You know, if the Lord blesses us in this meeting, and I'm blessed to preach at all, and we have sweet fellowship with the Spirit of the Lord is here, we'll leave here Sunday afternoon rejoicing. We go back home. We have a special meeting planned with Elder Neil Honey coming to Zion on Sunday night. We'll have a great time there. I fully expect the Lord to bless Brother Neil. I'll leave that meeting flying as high 
as I can fly. And by bedtime, if I'm not careful, I'll be so down in the dumps. <laughs> I'll be just thinking, oh, Lord, poor, pitiful me. That's when I have the home. It's after the greatest. That's what happened to Elijah, didn't it? Elijah called fire down from heaven. <laughs> I've never done that. I've felt the fire of God before when I've been preaching, but I've never called down fire from heaven. And he not only called down fire from heaven, you know, water puts out fire, right? Well, this fire put out water. <laughs> the fire licked up the water in the trench. And God, and then the next thing that happened was one person said something bad about him and he got off out under the juniper tree saying, Lord, just take my life. I, I hope, I appreciate, I've been here before and I know how encouraging you all are. And I appreciate that. I, in my church, I have some most encouraging people. You did a great job. Brother Chris, what a wonderful message. Oh, I enjoy that message. Even when I know I didn't preach a good message, they tell me I did. They're so sweet. But I can have preached the greatest message I've ever preached in my life, and 99 people tell me how great a job I did, and one person come up and say, I just don't, I just, I didn't agree with you on that, brother. I just think that was, that was wrong. You're off. And you know what I think about the rest of the week? It's not the 99 encouragements. It's the one criticism. The one criticism. Anyway, it was an humble prayer. And look, it was also an, a, hopeful, a hopeful prayer. Verse 8, remember. Now he's talking to God here. The Lord God of heaven, remember? He said, remember, I beseech ye the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, if you transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if you, return unto, if you turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of heaven, yet will I gather them from thence and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. What a hopeful outlook. Now, this is a man who is weeping. This is a man who is distraught. This is a man who is down over the condition of God's people and it doesn't look very good for them. The walls are broken down and I'll tell you, if there was a city in that day whose walls were broken down, it was open to all kinds of plundering. It was open to all kinds of captivity. People would come in, other cities, other nations could come in and just walk all over them. And he said, you remember what he said, they're in great affliction and reproach over there. I've seen situations like that. Zion Church is a situation like that. Great affliction and reproach. But he has this hopeful, you know what? Look at what he says. <laughs> Nehemiah was schooled in the scriptures. And he knew something that we would do well to remember. And that is this. Our God is a covenant keeping God. Our God makes promises that he intends to keep. He told them back over in uh, Leviticus, the 26th chapter, in verse 39. In fact, if you go back up a little farther, you're going to see in the 34th and 35th verses there that there's, a, I believe, a direct reference to the Babylonian captivity. Talking about the land enjoying her Sabbaths during the chastening of God. That's another story, a sermon as well. But, uh, but, but here he says in verse 39, They that are left of you shall pine away in their iniquity in your enemies' lands, and also in the iniquities of their fathers shall they pine away with them. That's the condition that God's people were in in that day. Sometimes we find ourselves there in, there in that condition in our day, don't we? But notice verse 40, If they shall confess their iniquity, and the iniquity of their fathers with their trespass, which they trespassed against me, and that they also have walked contrary unto me, 
and that I also have walked contrary unto them. You know, it's one thing to walk contrary unto God. It's a whole nother thing for him to walk contrary unto you. <laughs> Boy, when the Lord gets, when you get crossed up with the Lord, you're in a bad shape. I've been there, Brother Ronald. I know what I'm talking about. I know whereof I speak. When the chastening of the Lord comes, <laughs> by the way, let me just say this to you about that. I had somebody one time, actually more than once, say to me, Preacher, what have I done that the Lord's punishing me so? There's a whole lot of, I don't have time to go, there's a whole lot of reasons for suffering in this world. And sometimes it's the chastening of God. It, it really is. But if you can't figure out what you've done that the Lord is chastening you for, it's probably not the Lord chastening you. <laughs> you know, my daddy was the best daddy I could ever think, uh, hope to have. Not one time, Brother Ronald, did he ever spank me without telling me why. And our God is a greater God, a greater daddy than my daddy ever would have, could have possibly been. You know, if you've got any spiritual sense at all, I've been chastened by God. And I've never been chastened by God that I didn't know exactly why. <laughs> now, it might not have started out that way, but I started looking inward. And if you've got any spiritual sense at all, if you talk to him, he'll tell you. You'll know. And if you don't know, it's most likely just the world or the flesh or the devil, the sufferings of this sin-cursed world coming upon you. Anyway, um, notice it says, they have walked contrary to me and that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised hearts be humbled and they then accept of the punishment of their iniquity, then will I remember my covenant with Jacob and also my covenant with Isaac, and also my covenant with Abraham will I remember, and I will remember the land. And he goes on to tell them that he'll restore them, and he'll bring them back. You know why he'll do that? Because he is a covenant-keeping God. He is a covenant-keeping God. You know, when you're in trouble, you know where you need to flee to? To find comfort, you need to flee to the covenant of God. Is that not exactly what happened in the seventh and eighth chapters of Romans? In the seventh chapter of Romans, Paul is bemoaning his estate, the curse of sin that he feels within him. He, he cries out at one point, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Then he comes on over in the eighth chapter, starts talking about the sufferings of this present time, the curse of sin around him, all the creation groaning and travailing in pain, and all the problems of life that he sees around him. Where does he go for comfort? By the way, he doesn't go to Romans 8 and 28 in the sense the world believes it. The world would tell you, here's where you find your comfort. God's got some secret plan. He's working all these things together for your good. You ain't ever going to know it. You're never going to figure it out. You just have to accept it. You know, the Stoics in the Greek days would have liked that philosophy. But I'm sorry, that's all it is, is a philosophy. Because the truth is, Paul is building up from the 7th and the 8th chapters to a crescendo there in the 28th and 29th and 30th verses and down following, telling us that here's where our hope lies. He says, in the midst of the struggles within you, in the midst of the struggles around you, remember that God is working for your good. What is He working? He's working His covenant of grace. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. Whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Whom he called, them he also justified. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. I like it that that's in the past tense. You know, it'd be foolish of me to say I went to church tomorrow. <laughs> that sounds crazy, doesn't it? I went to church tomorrow. I hope to go to church tomorrow. 
But I'm not so certain I'm going to get there. I wasn't sure I was going to get here tonight. (laughs) I hope I get here tomorrow, Brother Ronald. But God is so great. God is so powerful. He can put the future in the past tense. He said we are glorified. You don't look very glorified and I know I don't. (laughs) But in God's mind, we already are. It's so certain he's called that which is not as though it was. You see, the covenant of God is where we find our hope. And now as we bring this to a close, look at Nehemiah's. We've seen his prayer. We've seen his problem. Now look at his purpose. Look at verse 10. Now these are thy servants and thy people whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. Nehemiah says, here we are, Lord. Here we are. We're your servants. And we know we're yours because you made us yours. Paul tells, tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, about verses 19 and 20. In fact, it spans those verses. He said, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Only God's redeemed people have access and claims upon the promises of the covenants of God. And guess what? <laughs> he said, you've redeemed them. You've redeemed us by thy great power and by thy strong hand. You know, it's important to understand the covenant of grace because only from that covenant, that true covenant, that God completely saved his people from their sins when he died, when Jesus died on the cross, and that that had been purposed from eternity past, and that will be fulfilled in eternity future. Only by understanding that will we take comfort. That's his purpose. He said, here we are, Lord. We're yours. We're your redeemed people. And then verse 11, he says, here I go. (laughs) Here we are. Here I go. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name and prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day. And grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Nehemiah is not turning away. He's not criticizing. He's not passing the buck. He's planning to do something about the broken down walls in Jerusalem. And he's praying to God for mercy in the sight of the king because he had a lot to lose. He was the king's cupbearer. He was the one who was one of the closest people, closest advisors to the king. And it would be easy for the king to not let him go. But Nehemiah laid it all on the line. He said, you know, I'm not going to turn away. I'm going to go away and get to work. And notice he didn't, he didn't run ahead of God. He just said, God, use me if you want to. I'm here. You remember Isaiah? They said, who, who can we send? Isaiah said, here am I, send me. You know, that ought to be our attitude. Paul said on the road to Damascus, Lord, what wouldst thou have me to do? Not what... What do you want to do? Lord, what would you have me to do? I'm too bad to ask, say, Lord, I want to do this. Would you please bless it? (laughs) My real prayer ought to be, God, what do you want me to do? And I'll go do it to the best of my ability. So here's the summation, I guess you'd say. First of all, everything we undertake to do in this broken world, every broken thing that we try to fix, That undertaking must be predicated on an understanding of the fact of our eternal redemption. The fact of God's covenant of grace. There's nothing that will encourage us more. There's nothing, that's the solid ground that we can stand upon, that God saved his people from their sins. And he did so without help from them 
or without hindrance from them. Praise God. Because I'll tell you, I'm not too concerned about the help I might give God, but I'm concerned about all the hindrance that I would have given him if he'd left it up to me. I'd have never been able to do it myself. You know, Christ said in uh, John, the 15th chapter, the fifth verse, he said, without me, you can do nothing. We must understand that everything we undertake to do is predicated upon the fact of our eternal redemption being completed by Christ and our complete reliance upon the God of heaven. Secondly, anything we undertake to do is assured of success when God undertakes to help us. Paul said in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13, you remember John 5, uh, 15, 5, Christ said, without me you can do nothing. But you know what Paul said? I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me, not by myself, not because I'm such a great orator, not because I'm such a gifted preacher or so, such a smart uh, church member, but because God is such a great God. Christ strengthens us and with Him we can succeed in rebuilding and repairing even broken walls, even broken relationships, broken marriages, broken churches, broken churches. And also remember this, it takes an humble heart to get God's attention. You know, who's God? You would think that that the great God of heaven would be looking to the great men of earth. But instead, Isaiah 66 tells us, it's to this man I look, who is of a poor and a contrite spirit, and who trembleth at my word. Do you want to be great in the kingdom of God? Do you want to, you know, I like this idea of being a giant slayer. I, I do. I, I love the idea that I might get out there and fight in the, the giant battles, spiritual battles of life. But you know what you got to do if you want to slay a giant? First thing you got to do is you got to learn to shepherd sheep. You got to learn to shepherd sheep. You know where David, that little shepherd boy, started becoming a giant killer, a giant slayer? On the hillsides of Bethlehem, shepherding those smelly old sheep of his father, fighting off a bear and a lion when nobody was watching, nobody was cheering, nobody was giving him accolades when he easily could have neglected it, but yet he was faithful in the everyday things of life. You know, you know where your giant slaying career begins? At home. When you come home from work and you're ill and you're tired and you're stressed out. When you're thinking your mom and daddy don't know anything anymore and they're putting boundaries on you that they shouldn't instead of Instead of lashing out and rebelling, you submit to those daily things. You know, where the, you know where the rebuilding of a church begins? With one person. I know this because I've experienced it. One person, my dear sweet old aunt, who stayed faithful, who recognized the problems and made some changes that comported with the Word of God, and the Lord blessed this dumb old preacher who thought the church was dead and never intended to be a primitive Baptist to be their pastor now for the last 10 years. Praise God that he has an affinity for fixing broken things. And he uses broken people to do it. How do I know it? Because he's used me. <laughs> and he will use you. May the Lord add his blessings to his word.